Hello, everyone. My name is Ray, and this is my wife, Lori, and we've been attending TCC for about 11 years now. Today's scripture reading is 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10, from the New International Version. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him as coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister and sister. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Ray and Lori. Well, happy Father's Day as one dad to another. Uh, I don't know what your plans are. I'm looking forward to just hanging out with the kids. You know, things change a little bit as they get older. Um, no longer do I get handmade crafts, you know, made in Sunday school or at school, you know, with a nice picture frame or a cup holder for pens. Um, I actually have one of those still on my desk. I don't know how old the kids were when they were, but, you know, you, you treasure these things that your kids give, right? Um, today, I'm hoping they just lavish me with maybe a new set of golf clubs or something. Father's Day is one of those interesting days, just like Mother's Day, and uh, and I have to say, you know, I'm I'm thankful for my dad. Some of you probably remember him. He actually attended TCC up until October of 2019 when he was hospitalized, and then he never returned uh, to his own home after that. Now he's been in a nursing home, and occasionally people will ask, you know, how's how's your dad doing? And I have a pretty standard response. He has a heartbeat, but isn't living. You see, Dad's been uh, has really declined with dementia. Um, it's so hard to to watch and to see. And and every time I, I go to visit him, you know, I'm just I I, I am filled with gratitude. And I'm grateful not just for my dad, but for the work of grace. I think that God did in our relationship. You see, I think I had a pretty complicated relationship with my dad. 
Maybe not unlike the relationship that some of you had with your dads as well. My dad was the provider in our family. He worked extremely hard. He had immigrated from Germany in August of 1948, came here to this country like even some people do today with absolutely nothing. In fact, he was sponsored by an uncle who lived uh, up in the Westlock area. And really for the first year and some, he worked there simply to pay off this debt that, uh, had, that he owed his uncle for bringing him and his dad and uh, his sister to Canada. And he just spent that first year just working his butt off. Um, in fact, uh, my aunt would refer to it as it was really more a form of slavery than anything else. And uh, <clears throat> I was talking, <clears throat> I took some notes one time and just talking to dad. <clears throat> and it's, um, and he's talked about how every day, day in, day out, for the first like six months, he just chopped wood. Um, so that they could stoke, stoke this fire. And then in the winter time, they went out in the bush and they cut down trees and they brought the trees in. So guess what? The next summer, they could just chop wood uh, endlessly as well. And so it was after that time up in Westlock that he then came back to Edmonton and um, really bounced around a little bit for different jobs for about the first 10 years because, you know, in those days, it was like, if you could make a nickel more per hour somewhere, you, you went and took that job. And, uh, and so that's, that's what he did. But it was always usually construction-related until eventually he just started building homes uh, on his own. And what I remember as a kid is that he worked long and hard and so he just wasn't around very much. In fact, one of the common occurrences in our family was, you know, mom would make dinner, uh, the, the kids would eat dinner, then she would pack some of it up. And, and I don't know if we didn't have the means, but we never had a thermos. So I remember those mason jars, she'd fill it with hot coffee, you know, and screw the lid on that. And then we'd go to the job site wherever he was, and he would eat dinner, um, and we would just run around, play, and then we'd say, bye, dad, and go. And we'd be long in bed before he ever got home, and he'd be gone in the morning before we got up. <clears throat> and so during that time, you know, I remember that, you know, we never went without at least physically things or material things. We had food, we had clothing, we had shelter, we had all the necessities, if you will, of life. But what I really craved was that emotional connection. The one that you have when your dad is really involved in your life. <clears throat> and ultimately what happened was that as I grew up and as I grew in my faith, I discovered that my view of God the Father was impacted by the way that I viewed my relationship with my dad. You see, because what I did is I tried to earn my dad's love. I thought that he would pay more attention to me if I just worked harder, if I did better in school, if I excelled at sports, if I competed and had some success, then, you know, he would love me. It's not that he didn't love me. It was just that the way that he showed his love <clears throat> didn't kind of fit with the way that I needed, <clears throat> excuse me, to experience his love. <clears throat> there were a number of other things that I've, over the years, have kind of worked through and thought about a lot. Because of that, um, I became a professional people pleaser. Um, that was challenging and sometimes still kind of comes up and, and uh, confuses me a little bit. Um, there was the whole issue of perfectionism because I felt like, man, um, I'm just not good enough. And so I'm going to try harder. Well, you know where that leads you eventually. 
But it was through all of that that I believe that I ultimately came and discovered the depths of God's grace. You see, by God's grace and just through some intentional healing, my view of God changed and my relationship with my God, with, with my dad, was healed. And what I learned is that no matter what your relationship with your dad is like, although it certainly can twist and warp your view of God, we do need to know God personally, to know Jesus so that we can have a right view of God, a correct view of him. And ultimately, to be a good dad or a good mom or even a a good child or a good brother or sister, we have to start with knowing God our Father and then living out of that identity as a child of God. And in this passage that Ray and Lori read for us today, there's really these two related themes about becoming a child of God and then abiding in that relationship. So a question that I want you just to ponder as I continue this morning is just simply this. Would I consider myself to be a child of God? Am I a child of God? And then secondly, am I abiding in that relationship? I want to suggest to you that how you answer that question has significant consequences for your life and the way that you live your life. But let's look at these verses first under the heading, becoming a child of God and abiding in him. See, we're all given the opportunity to become children of God. Now, sometimes you'll hear someone say things like, well, we're all God's children. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that's simply not true. Now, we are all God's creation. We're all created in his image. That's true. But we're not all God's children. Because something has to happen in order for us to become one of God's children. And in verse 29, John writes about people who he he says have been born of him. You see, this rebirth happens when, when people come to faith in Jesus, when they believe in Jesus. That is that they believe the truth about who Jesus is and by faith receive him. John earlier in his gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, puts it this way. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so John's talking there not about a physical birth, but a spiritual one. And in John chapter 3 then, Jesus has a conversation about this spiritual birth with a man named Nicodemus. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. I want to read a few verses just so that you maybe become familiar with this again, or maybe it's for the first time. But there John writes, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, that comment confused Nicodemus. And so he says, well, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Probably had a bit of an eye roll at this point. But Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. 
flesh gives birth to flesh or this physical birth, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And so there is this spiritual birth. So what Jesus is addressing here with John, or sorry, uh, with Nicodemus, is that there is a, a, the reality is, is that we may be spiritually dead, but we can be reborn or made alive again in Christ. In fact, this is the message of Ephesians. We were once dead, but we were made alive. And there Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, he says, as for you, you were dead, there it is, in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, he's talking past tense here all the time, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh. Remember a few weeks back, John was talking about the, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the, the, um, <clears throat> the lust of, of, the, of, uh, of flesh and eyes. Sorry, got that all mixed up. But you remember it. You can look back just a few verses and you'll see it. But now um, Paul is writing this. He says, following its desires and these cravings of the flesh... Like the rest, he says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we were due to pay the price for that. And that's why I love verse 4, because it starts with but. But because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is by grace you have been saved, verse 8, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we are spiritually reborn through belief and faith in Jesus Christ. Now also related to this is the concept of adoption. And the Bible teaches that when we come to faith in Jesus, we, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And the Bible really uses both of these metaphors, being born again and being adopted, to describe the relationship that we ultimately have with God. Let's just think about what we might know about adoption. When you think about that little child being adopted, what control or involvement did that child have over the process of adoption itself? Nothing, right? Someone came, perhaps into an orphanage, saw this child, loved the child, drew the child to themselves, cared for them, nurtured them, as if this child was one of their own. In the same way, God chooses us because he loves us. Not because we're especially attractive or deserving, but because God the Father lavishes his love on us. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. John writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Don't miss this this morning, friends. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And if that was enough, he just says, and that is what we are. That is our identity. 
that we are sons and daughters of God. I mean, are there any better words? This love that's amazing, it's wonderful, and the Father, he says, lavishes it on us. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This love that's unconditional, it's unlimited, it's unmerited. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to pass an entrance exam. We don't, we don't even have to do well in an interview. It's hard to understand, isn't it? To even comprehend. But we say yes to Jesus. And we were once dead, but now we're made alive. Last week, if you were here, there were two baptisms Baptism itself symbolizes this dying to ourselves and being made alive in Christ. And the two young men that that were baptized gave witness and testimony to this work of grace in their lives. Yesterday, we had a memorial service for Duncan McNeil. Most of you probably never met Duncan. He started attending TCC about a year ago, just maybe a few Sundays, then was diagnosed with leukemia, had to stay home, watched online. And I really didn't have much of a chance to get to to know him even over this time. And uh, one of the stories I was told about him was that uh, he would meet people and he'd go up to them and say, hi, I'm Duncan. I'm a Christian. Are you? Well, are you? Because if you are, you are a child of God. And with that, not only comes benefits and privileges, but responsibilities. And so John goes on to say, then continue in him. This is verse 28. And the word translated there continue in him is the Greek verb meno, and it's rich in meaning. It can mean abide. Other meanings are to remain in or stay. And the word conveys connection and closeness, both in faith and in doctrine. And the same word is used by John in his gospel in chapter 15, where he uses the metaphor of the vines and the branches We just went through the last chapters of John in in our study called Living the Life. And I think it was Pastor Adam that did a great message on the, the, the necessity of abiding and remaining in Christ Jesus. Now, one of those ways, I mean, in fact, there's several ways that we might abide or remain is when we intentionally engage in spiritual practices. Somehow we always land there, don't we? That when we focus our attention intentionally through silence and solitude, carving out time in our day to be with Jesus, to read the word, to pray, to worship, to come on Sundays, to to fellowship with others. It's all part of our engaging in these spiritual practices. And all of those help us to then abide in him. 
Now, abiding can mean and look like a lot of different things, I think, but I want to pull out some things from our passage this morning and then unpack them a little in the time that we have left. I think, first of all, abiding means that we are watchful, that we're watchful. If you go back and look at verse 28 again, he says, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. I want you just to highlight two key words there. I want you to notice this. He uses the word appears as in when he, or that is Jesus appears, and then the very last word coming. The truth is what John is getting at is that Jesus is coming again. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus came the first time. It was the incarnation, God becoming man. He lived, he died, he was, he, he was buried, but he rose again. Ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again. And when he comes, there will be judgment. We could look at that and be a little nervous. Maybe that makes us even a little uncomfortable. Maybe we're just a little flat out scared by that. Or... We know that if we abide in him, meaning we follow the teaching we heard from the beginning, we stay true to the word, we remain or continue in Christ, then there's absolutely nothing to worry or to fear. We actually look forward to it. We're watchful. He uses words there. We would be confident of this. We wouldn't be ashamed of this. In fact, we look forward to it. We watch for it. And we pray like the book of Revelation ends, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I think it's just something we don't think enough about. And when you think about the confusing times that we live in, when we think about some of the chaos... You know, sometimes people, even in in my generation, they kind of shake their heads at the world, right? And it's real. And they'll say things like, I can't even imagine the world that my grandchildren are going to grow up in. Come, Lord Jesus. Put an end to it all. Make all things right. So we need to realize that Jesus is coming again. Again, There will be a day of reckoning. And shouldn't we want that day to happen sooner rather than later? Now, the fact is the church in the 21st century as a whole isn't talking about the second coming of Jesus as much as it used to. Maybe because there have been too many embarrassing predictions of the day and time, even though Jesus warned against that kind of speculation. I have a book in my library, 100 Reasons That Jesus Will Return by 1988. (laughs) I kept it just to remind me of the silliness of it. I don't even know where I got it from, to be honest, probably in some bargain bin in 1989. (laughs) But, you know, we see that kind of stuff and we blow it off and we laugh about it. But it still doesn't change the fact that it will come. We just don't know the time or the day or the hour. We don't need to speculate about that. We don't need to worry about that. But we should watch out for it. 
I read an article by Matthew Westerholm. He's a professor of church music and worship, and he compared two large selections of worship songs. The first were the most commonly sung congregational songs in the United States since the year 2000. And I think he wrote this article in about 2016. And then the second was the most commonly published congregational songs because they didn't have CCLI and they didn't track every time they, they sang these songs, but they were published in hymn books from 1730 to 1850. So comparing 16 years in 2000s to 120 years in the 18th and 19th century. Now among many of the similarities, one difference was striking to him and you know what it is, don't you? He concluded that our churches no longer sing about Christ's second coming as much as we used to. And so I kind of thought, well, what songs do we sing maybe that, that refer to the second coming? And one song that you may be familiar with is, Oh, Praise the Name, or Anastasis, which just means resurrection. And it's a beautiful hymn, really, that just leads us through the gospel story about what happened to Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. But then it gets to the verse, he shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. That's quite an image, isn't it? Should we cower in fear? Do we run and hide? Oh no, it's happening. And I will rise, he says, among the saints. My gaze transfixed on Jesus face so when we are watchful i believe we would be more intentional we prioritize the right things maybe we should be asking is what i'm doing right now how i want to be found when jesus returns and rather than dreading his return we welcome it we pray for it amen come lord jesus and we live accordingly So abiding means, first of all, that we are watchful. Secondly, abiding means we pursue holiness. So in the meantime, we don't get all caught up in when and how, you know, this is going to end. And um, we just give our attention to the pursuit of holiness. Because that's really what Jesus invites us into. And this is what John says in John 3, verse 2. He says, dear friends... Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. So there's some mystery around that. But we know that when Christ appears, there it is again, he says, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. He doesn't explain exactly what it is, but I can guarantee you that it's something inconceivably wonderful, and it's waiting for us. But he says, for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Paul, in writing to the Philippians in chapter um, 3, verse 20 and 21, he is speaking to this as well. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Just think about that. You know, we think, oh, well, we're Canadian. We're Canadian citizens. This is where we make our living. And we put down our roots here. But friends, we're, this is so temporary. We're just passing through. Because our citizenship, if you are in Christ, is already in heaven. 
And he says, and we eagerly, listen, await a savior from there. So there's this theme again of the second coming. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And in the verses following in 1 John then, John returns to what seems like a favorite topic of his in this letter. Sin. And maybe it makes us uncomfortable, but the reality is that God has established a way for humanity to live. He gives clear direction on all matter of issues. Sure, we have to interpret them correctly, but I don't think there are as many gray issues as we'd like to think. Most are pretty black and white, right? Do this, don't do that. And then anything that misses the mark is sin. And when he establishes a law or makes a command and we don't do it, we sin. But look at what John writes then beginning at verse 4. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. There's this sense of rebellion that God said this, but I'm going to do things my way. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. That's the first time he appeared. And in him, he goes on to say, is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. John makes these dramatic statements. And it kind of ruffles us a little bit. It makes us maybe even a little uncomfortable. But the idea here is that a person, or the idea that a person can abide in Christ, or remain in Christ, or continue in Christ while continuing to indulge in habitual sinful behavior is frankly ridiculous, if not blasphemous. And John clearly states that Jesus' mission in coming the first time was to take away our sins. We already looked at a key verse in chapter 2 and verse 2 about Jesus being an atoning sacrifice. There John wrote, he says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus paid the price for our sins. But not only for ours, he says, but also for the sins of the whole world. We just need to accept that gift. John also goes on then to remind us that Jesus was without sin. In him, he says, is no sin. And that is why he could make atonement for sins. This perfect lamb of God. No sin, no blemishes. A once and for all sacrifice for sin. And so here it is. If that is what Jesus did for us, demonstrating this extravagant love for humanity, demonstrating abounding and amazing grace and mercy, Shouldn't it then impact the way that we live? You see, our belief absolutely should impact our behavior. That what we do, what we watch for entertainment, those should all be fair game to question. Some time ago, I heard a speaker and he posed this question that has always stuck with me. Why are we being entertained 
by the very sins that put Jesus on the cross. Why? Now, you'll never unhear that, and I hope you tuck it away as I have. Why are we being entertained by the very sins that put Jesus on the cross? So can I ask you, Christian? Can I ask you, follower of Jesus? Can I ask you, child of God? What was the last show you binge-watched on Netflix? What was the last R-rated movie you saw? Now, you may think that that's a little over the top, but is it? You see, if we're abiding in Christ, why would we fill our minds with garbage? And I take you back to a little phrase in verse 3. All who have this hope in him, this hope of being like Jesus, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. I read this in my studying this week, and I quote, Our hope of being like Christ, when he appears, must express itself in an effort to purify ourselves to be like him. So it requires an effort on our part to purify ourselves to be like him. Back in 1990, the early 90s, I'm dating myself, but I'm bringing some of you along with me. Um, Brian Dirksen wrote a song called Refiner's Fire. And, and I know we've, we've still sung it from time to time. But I remember at that time that I would just passionately sing this song, and maybe you did too, because it really captured the heart of this longing for holiness. And the lyrics go, purify my heart. It's really a beautiful prayer. Let me be as gold and precious silver. And what's the imagery there? It's heating up the gold so that all the impurities surface. And the refiner can just scrape off the impurities so that there's pure gold, precious silver that's left. He says, purify my heart. Do that in my heart, God. Let me be as gold, pure gold, refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy. Set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. Friends, can we just take holiness more seriously than I think we often do? Let's be more alert and aware of the subtle deceptions in our world. If there are habits of sin in our lives, then we need to lean in and depend on the Holy Spirit to help us develop habits of godliness. You see, we break the habit of sin by simply saying no to them. And then we develop good habits by always doing them. I came across this great quote by Jerry Bridges who writes a beautiful book called The Pursuit of Holiness. I need to read this. I wasn't going to, but I, I need to. He says this, Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stop using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I am saying something outside of me has defeated me. 
But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We've chosen to disobey. And he goes on, he says, we need to brace ourselves up and realize that we, we are responsible for our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. And we need to reckon on the fact that we died to sin's reign, that it no longer has any dominion over us, that God has united us with the risen Christ in all his power and has given us the Holy Spirit to work in us only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions, will we make any progress in the pursuit of holiness? Amen? Abiding means, lastly, we do what is right. And I'm just going to read verses 7 to 10, and I I won't say much about it. I mean, there's so much here. When I was preparing for this message, one of the things that I do is I, I, I print out the text in four different translations, and then I just start reading and rereading and highlighting. And when I stepped back and looked at it, it was just pretty much everything was highlighted because there's so much richness in there. And now it feels like a lot of it is just falling to the cutting room floor, so to speak. But I'm just going to read these verses for you again. Listen to them. Dear children... Here's that warm pastoral heart of John again. He says, do not let anyone lead you astray. Be aware of the deceptive practices. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. See, throughout this letter, isn't John just kind of in your face sometimes? He has these very stark lines. There's light and dark, living the truth, living a lie, child of God, child of Satan. And it's a theme that runs through these verses here, though, at the end, is that there's a clear connection between ultimately knowing God, about being his child, and then doing what is right. Both verses 7 and 10 make direct reference to this. The one who does what is right is righteous. Friends, this is not a self-righteousness. This is not a holier-than-thou attitude. This is a righteousness that comes from Jesus when we become a child of God, right? Because if we look at our own selves, we are anything but righteous on our own. And in theology, this is known as imputed righteousness. Now, don't let that word scare you. It's just the doctrine that when we become a Christian, read about it in Ephesians 2 very clearly, we are declared righteous by God, purely by God's grace, through faith in Jesus. This is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, for your sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. There it is again. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's so much more that I could say about this, but in essence, the believer is simply credited with the righteousness of Jesus 
And in Jesus, there is no sin. One of the fun little things I like to do when I go to an ATM, uh, I don't do this as much anymore. I don't know, you take pictures of checks and deposit them and you don't go to the bank as much. But I used to like finding the little slips, the receipts that somebody else left before me and, and look at them. It's like pff, overdrawn, you know, or $203, you know, whatever it was, right? It was just not much. But you know those slips. Now imagine... Your bank account is almost always overdrawn or just on the verge of being overdrawn. And one time you go and you take a small withdrawal and you get the slip back and the balance just has no end to the zeros at the end of it. And you think there must be a mistake, that you didn't deserve it, that this is way too much. Friends, that's what it's like with Jesus. We didn't deserve his righteousness, but he gave it to us because of his amazing grace. We didn't deserve his lavish love. We didn't deserve his mercy, but he gave it. Friends, because of what Jesus has done for us, we don't run around trying to earn his love. He already loves us unconditionally. But we respond to that love. And that becomes our motivation for doing what is right. We don't try to live a righteous life because then it's all about ourselves. We think by our good living we can impress God. No, we can't. It's not how it works. This is the good news. We are declared righteous when we put our faith in Jesus and nothing else. And then on account of of his righteousness given to us. We act according to who we are. God's children, made righteous through faith in Jesus. And we spend the rest of our days seeking to live that out with God's help. We demonstrate in essence whose child we are by the way we think and by the way we act. So the question really is, If God is our heavenly father and we are his children, is there any family resemblance? Let's pray. Father, these are important, important issues for us to deal with. And my heart and my prayer is that for everyone listening, That when they are asked, are you a believer? Are you a follower? Are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? That they can with absolute certainty say yes. That is who I am. And Father, for those who can't say that with absolute certainty today, I pray that you would give them the grace and the strength and the courage that they would exercise the faith that you were drawing them to. That your love would become irresistible to them. And that they would just throw up their hands and surrender to you. And mark this Father's Day, the day when they become a child of God. 
And Father, for those that are children of God today, again, we pray that when we look at the ways in which we might abide, being watchful, pursuing holiness, and just simply doing what is right. I pray that you, through your spirit, would empower us to do that and that we wouldn't try harder, but that we would draw closer. So, Father, as we sing this song of commitment, I pray that those hearts maybe that were prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, that we would declare today that with absolute certainty, Lord, I want to give you my heart. Take it. Seal it. Use me. Help me to live the life that you've called me to live. Even when there's all sorts of pressures around us, when we go to school tomorrow, when we go to work, when we know that there's a way to live that is in darkness, but there's a way to live that is in light. So help us to be people who walk and live in the light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.